Chapter Six of When William Came by Saki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. When William Came by Saki. Chapter Six. Herr von Quarl. Herr von Quarl sat at his favourite table in the Brandenburg Café, the new building that made such an imposing show, and did such thriving business, at the lower end of what most of its patrons called the Regenstrasse. Though the establishment was new, it had already achieved its unwritten code of customs, and the sanctity of Herr von Quarl's special reserved table had acquired the authority of a tradition. A set of chessmen, a copy of the Kreuzzeitung and the Times, and a slim-necked bottle of Rhenish wine, ice-cool from the cellar, were always to be found there early in the forenoon, and the honoured guest for whom these preparations were made usually arrived on the scene shortly after eleven o'clock. For an hour or so he would read and silently digest the contents of his two newspapers, and then, at the first sign of flagging interest on his part, another of the café's regular customers would march across the floor, exchange a word or two on the affairs of the day, and be bidden with a wave of the hand into the opposite seat. A waiter would instantly place the chessboard with its marshalled ranks of combatants in the required position, and the contest would begin. Herr von Quarl was a heavily built man of mature middle age, of the blonde North German type, with a facial aspect that suggested stupidity and brutality. The stupidity of his mien masked an ability and a shrewdness that was distinctly above the average, and the suggestion of brutality was belied by the fact that von Quarl was as kind-hearted a man as one could meet with in a day's journey. Early in life, almost before he was in his teens, Fritz von Quarl had made up his mind to accept the world as it was, and to that philosophical resolution, steadfastly adhered to, he attributed his excellent digestion and his unruffled happiness. Perhaps he confused cause and effect. The excellent digestion may have been responsible for at least some of the philosophical serenity. He was a bachelor, of the type that is called confirmed, and which might better be labelled consecrated. From his early youth onward to his present age, he had never had the faintest flickering intention of marriage. Children and animals he adored. Women and plants he accounted somewhat of a nuisance. A world without women and roses and asparagus would, he admitted, be robbed of much of its charm, but with all their charm these things were tiresome and thorny and capricious, always wanting to climb or creep in places where they were not wanted, and resolutely drooping and fading away when they were desired to flourish. Animals, on the other hand, accepted the world as it was, and made the best of it, and children, at least nice children, uncontaminated by grown-up influences, lived in worlds of their own making. Von Quarl held no acknowledged official position in the country of his residence, but it was an open secret that those responsible for the real direction of affairs sought his counsel on nearly every step that they meditated, and that his counsel was very rarely disregarded. Some of the shrewdest and most successful enactments of the ruling power were believed to have originated in the brain-cells of the bovine-fronted Stangast of the Brandenburg Café. Around the wood-panelled walls of the café were set at intervals well-mounted heads of boar, elk, 
stag, roebuck, and other game-beasts of a northern forest, while in between were carved armorial escutcheons of the principal cities of the lately expanded realm, Magdeburg, Manchester, Hamburg, Bremen, Bristol, and so forth. Below these came shelves, on which stood a wonderful array of stone beer-mugs, each decorated with some fantastic device or motto, and most of them pertaining individually and sacredly to some regular and unfailing customer. In one particular corner of the highest shelf, greatly at his ease and in no wise to be disturbed, slept Wotan, the huge grey house-cat, dreaming doubtless of certain nimble and audacious mice down in the cellar, three floors below, whose nimbleness and audacity were as precious to him as the forwardness of the birds is to a skilled gun on a grouse-moor. Once every day Wotan came marching in stately fashion across the polished floor, halted midway to resume an unfinished toilet operation, and then proceeded to pay his leisurely respects to his friend von Quarle. The latter was said to be prouder of this daily demonstration of esteem than of his many coveted orders of merit. Several of his friends and acquaintances shared with him the distinction of having achieved the Black Eagle, but not one of them had ever succeeded in obtaining the slightest recognition of their existence from Wotan. The daily greeting had been exchanged, and the proud grey beast had marched away to the music of a slumberous purr. The Kreutzt Zeitung and the Times underwent a final scrutiny and were pushed aside, and von Quarl gazed aimlessly out of the July sunshine bathing the walls and windows of the Piccadilly Hotel. Herr Rebinock, the plump little Pomeranian banker, stepped across the floor almost as noiselessly as Wotan had done, though with considerably less grace, and some half a minute later was engaged in sliding pawns and knights and bishops to and fro on the chessboard in a series of lightning moves bewildering to look on. Neither he nor his opponent played with the skill that they severally brought to bear on banking and statecraft, nor did they conduct their game with the politeness that they punctiliously observed in other affairs of life. A running fire of contemptuous remarks and aggressive satire accompanied each move, and the mere record of the conversation would have given an uninitiated onlooker the puzzling impression that an easy and crushing victory was assured to both players. Uh, uh, he has puzzled. Uh, poor man. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, uh, he thinks he will move there, does he? Much good that will do him. Never have I seen such a mess as he is in. He cannot do anything. He is absolutely helpless. Helpless. "'Oh, you take my bishop, do you? Much I care for that. Nothing. See, I give you check. Ah, no, he isn't a fright. He doesn't know where to go. What a mess he is in!' So the game proceeded, with a brisk exchange of pieces and incivilities and a fluctuation of fortunes, till the little banker lost his queen as a result of an incautious move, and after several woe-begone contortions of his shoulders and hands, declined further contest. A sleek-haired piccolo rushed forward to remove the board, and the erstwhile combatants resumed the courteous dignity that they discarded in their chess-playing moments. "'Have you seen the Germania to-day?' asked Herr Rebinock, as soon as the boy had receded to a respectful distance. "'No,' said von Quarle. "'I never see the Germania.' I count on you to tell me if there is anything noteworthy in it. It has an article today headed Occupation or Assimilation, said the banker. 
"'It is of some importance, and well written. It is very pessimistic.' "'Catholic papers are always pessimistic about things of this world,' said von Kral. "'Just as they are unduly optimistic about things of the next world. What line does it take?' It says that our conquest of Britain can only result in a temporary occupation with a noticed quid always hanging over our heads, that we can never hope to assimilate the people of these islands in our empire as a sort of maritime Saxony or Bavaria. All the teaching of history is against it. Saxony and Bavaria are part of the empire because of their past history. England is being bound into the empire in spite of her past history, and so forth. The writer of the article has not studied history very deeply, said von Quarle. The impossible thing that he speaks of has been done before, and done in these very islands, too. The Norman conquest became an assimilation in comparatively few generations. Ah, uh, in those days, yes, said the banker. "'But the conditions were altogether different. "'There was not the rapid transmission of news "'in the means of keeping the public mind instructed in what was happening. "'In fact, one can scarcely say that the public mind was there to instruct. "'There was not the same bond of brotherhood between men of the same nation that exists now. "'Northumberland was almost as far into Devon or Kent as Normandy was. "'In the church in those days was a great international factor.' and the Crusades bound men together, fighting under one leader for a common cause. Also, there was not a great national past to be forgotten, as is in this case. "'There are many factors, certainly, that are against us,' conceded the statesman. "'But you must also take into account those that will help us. In most cases in recent history, where the conquered have stood out against all attempts at assimilation, there has been a religious difference to add to the racial one. Take Poland, for instance, and the Catholic parts of Ireland. If the Bretons ever seriously begin to assert their nationality as against the French, it will be because they have remained more Catholic in practice and sentiment than their neighbours. Here there is no such complication. We are in the bulk a Protestant nation with a Catholic minority. And the same may be said of the British. Then, in modern days, there is the alchemy of sport and the drama to bring men of different races amicably together. One or two sportsmen like Germans in a London football team will do more to break down racial antagonism than anything the governments or councils can effect. As for the state, it has long been international in its tendencies. You can see that every day. The banker nodded his head. "'London is not our greatest difficulty,' continued von Kval. "'You must remember the steady influx of Germans since the war. Whole districts are changing the complexion of their inhabitants, and in some streets you might almost fancy yourself in a German town. We can scarcely hope to make much impression on the country districts and the provincial towns at present.' "'But you must remember that thousands and thousands of the more virile and restless old men have emigrated, and thousands more will follow their example. We shall fill up their places with our own surplus population, as the Teuton races colonized England in the old pre-Christian days. 
That is better, is it not, to people the fat meadows of the Thames Valley and the healthy downs and uplands of Sussex and the Berkshire, than to go hunting for elbow-room among the flies and fevers of the tropics? We have somewhere to go to now, better than the scrub and the veldt and the thorn jungles. Of course, of course, assented Herr Rebinock. But while this desirable process of infiltration and assimilation goes on, how are you going to provide against the hostility of the conquered nation? A people with a right tradition behind them, and a ruling instinct strongly developed, won't sit with their eyes closed and their hands folded while you carry on the process of Germanization. What will keep them quiet? The hopelessness of the situation. For centuries Britain has ruled the seas and been able to dictate a half the world in consequence. Then she let slip the mastery of the seas as something too costly and onerous to keep up, something which aroused too much jealousy and uneasiness in others. And now the seas rule her. Every wave that breaks on her shore rattles the keys of her prison. I am no fire-eater, Herr Rebinock. But I confess that when I am at Dover, say, or Southampton, and see those dark blots on the sea and those grey specks in the sky, our battleships and cruisers and aircraft, and realise what they mean to us, my heart beats just a little quicker. If every German was flung out of England tomorrow, in three weeks' time we should be coming in again on our own terms with our sea scouts and air scouts spread in organised network around, not a shipload of foodstuff could reach the country. They know that. They can calculate how many days of independence and starvation they could endure, and they will make no attempt to bring about such a certain fiasco. Brave men fight for a forlorn hope, but the bravest do not fight for an issue they know to be hopeless. That is so said Herr Rebinock. As things are at present, they can do nothing from within. Absolutely nothing. We have weighed all that beforehand. But, as the Germania points out, there is another Britain beyond the seas. Supposing the court at Delhi were to engineer a league. A league? A league with whom? interrupted the statesman. Russia we can watch and hold. We are rather nearer to its western frontier than Delhi is and we could throttle its Baltic trade at five hours' notice. France and Holland are not inclined to provoke our hostility. They would have everything to lose by such a course. There are other forces in the world that might be arrayed against us, argued the banker. The United States, Japan, Italy, they all have navies. Does the teaching of history show you that it is the strong power, armed and ready, that has to suffer from the hostility of the world? asked von Quarl. As far as the sentiment goes, perhaps, but not in practice. The danger has always been for the weak, dismembered nation. Think you for a moment. Has the enfeebled, scattered British Empire overseas no undefended territories that are a temptation to her neighbours? Has Japan nothing to glean where we have harvested? Are there no North American possessions which might slip into other keeping? Has Russia herself no traditional temptations beyond the Oxus? Mind you, we are not making the mistake Napoleon made. 
when he forced all Europe to be for him or against him. We threatened no world aggressions. We are satisfied where he was insatiable. We have cast down one overshadowing power from the face of the world, because it stood in our way. But we have made no attempt to spread our branches all over the space that is covered. We have not tried to set up a tributary Canadian Republic, or to partition South Africa. We have dreamed no dream of making ourselves lords of Hindustan. On the contrary, we have given proof of our friendly intentions towards our neighbours. We backed France up the other day in her squabble with Spain over the Moroccan boundaries, and proclaimed our opinion that the Republic has as indisputable a mission on the North African coast as we have in the North Sea. That is not the action or the language of aggression. No, continued von Kval, after a moment's silence. The world may fear us and dislike us, but for the present, at any rate, there will be no leagues against us. No, there is one rock on which our attempt at assimilation will founder or find firm anchorage. And that is? The youth of the country. The generation that is at the threshold now, it is them that we must capture. We must teach them to learn, and coax them to forget. In course of time, Anglo-Saxon may blend with German, as the Elbe-Saxons and the Bavarians and the Swabians have blended with the Prussians, into a loyal united people under the sceptre of the Hohenzollerns. Then we should be doubly strong. Roman Carthage rolled into one an empire of the West greater than Charlemagne ever knew. Then we could look Slav and Latin and Asiatic in the face, and keep our place as the central dominant force of the civilised world. The speaker paused for a moment, and drank a deep draught of wine, as though he were invoking the prosperity of that future world power. Then he resumed, in a more level tone. On the other hand... The younger generation of Britons may grow up in hereditary hatred, repulsing all our overtures, forgetting nothing and forgiving nothing, waiting and watching for the time when some weakness assails us, when some crisis entangles us, when we cannot be everywhere at once. Then our work will be imperiled, perhaps undone. There lies the danger. There lies the hope. The younger generation... "'There is another danger,' said the banker, after he had pondered over von Kval's remarks for a moment or two, amid the incense clouds of a fat cigar. "'A danger that I foresee in the immediate future. Perhaps not so much a danger as a, an element of exasperation which may ultimately defeat your plans. The law as to military service will have to be promulgated shortly, and that cannot fail to be bitterly unpopular.' The people of these islands will have to be brought into line with the rest of the empire in the matter of military training and military service. And how will they like that? Will not the enforcing of such a measure infuriate them against us? Remember, they have made great sacrifices to avoid the burden of military service.' "'Dear God!' exclaimed Herr von Kval. "'As you say, they have made sacrifices on that altar.' End of chapter 6